0: Thursday, February the 21st, 1974, was a big day in my life. The night before, I squirmed. Nervous and restless, I couldn't sleep. I was too excited. I got up early that morning. My dad stayed home from work. Together, he and I rode to the state patrol office, where I took my test for my Georgia driver's license. And guess what I passed first try I passed I still had to go to school that morning but instead of dropping me off at school dad drove straight home I remember him pulling into the driveway he got out of the car and he handed me the keys and he said Sandy it's all yours and I'll never forget the feeling it was so surreal. I mean, it was like stumbling out of a dream. The day you've imagined your whole life is now a reality. You ladies might not be able to understand this, but for a boy, it's different. When a young man takes over the car keys, it's a rite of passage. He is now empowered. It didn't matter that the keys I had received cranked a 64 Mercury Comet, (laughs) not exactly a hot rod. The type of car wasn't the point. I had the keys. And I'll never forget the thrill of taking those keys, cranking that car, backing it out of the driveway, heading down the street. The euphoria lasted until I turned the corner and could no longer see my house and my dad. And that's when it hit me. I was now in sole control of a real live two and a half ton automobile. No parent in the passenger seat. Now it's just me, all alone, all by myself. My sense of privilege had lasted just a few seconds before it had given way to a heavy load of responsibility. You see, keys weigh more than you think. And this is how I feel about the privilege of being a pastor. There are moments when I'm aware of the privilege I've been given. It's a lot of fun to do what I do. To engage a passage of scripture and and wrestle with its meaning. Then to pray and study and, and read until its intention becomes clear then to couch it in words and illustrations that help folks see how it applies to their lives. This is hard work, but for me, sermon preparation is great fun. It's also fun to follow God and lead a group of people. I mean, you start with a vision from God. It's just solely spiritual. It's a new method or a project or an emphasis or a mission. At first, it's just an idea on a napkin, but you believe You trust God to bring it to pass. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. My faith and and then your faith begins to give this vision structure and muscle and definition. A notion that once lived in thin air blooms into reality. People get saved and blessed and they grow. And you realize how privileged you are to be a part. It's a blast forming lifelong friendships, doing weddings, baptizing new believers, comforting folks in times of grief, are a few of a pastor's many privileges. In fact, the greatest joy on earth is to watch God switch the light on in a human heart and bring a person into a deeper faith. Boy, that's when it's fun to be a pastor. But sometimes that fun lasts about as long as it took me to drive around the corner In my 64 Comet. All too often, the thrill gives way to a deep sense of responsibility. It hits you. You're the one holding the keys. And it doesn't matter the size or the style or the luxuriousness of the car, those keys crank. All of a sudden, you're moving. I mean, cars in the other lane are flying by you, collisions are a possibility. Then you take on a passenger or two. Now it's your responsibility for other people. You're responsible for their lives and their welfare and their safety. And boy, that sense of euphoria is suddenly replaced by the realization that what you're doing is serious business. This is life and death. Driving is high stakes. And the same is true with being a pastor. Those keys Get really heavy. I've been a pastor now for 30 years, and this morning I want to talk about it. I want to discuss what it's like to be given the keys to a church. And this is going to be eye opening for some of you. For when you think of church, you approach it from your own frame of reference, and rightly so. What can you expect? I mean, you walk in, sing praises to God, listen to a message hopefully drop an offering in the box, jump back in the car, and then grade the sermon all the way home. That's okay. I know you do it. But here's what you don't do. You never put yourself in my shoes. You see, the church is full of backseat drivers who've never sat behind the wheel. You know, as a parent, have you ever thought... If my rowdy kids in the back seat knew how to drive a car, they'd behave themselves while I try to drive. Well, perhaps that's my intention for you this morning. I I want you to see church from a pastor's point of view. I've given this church 30 years, and I'm asking for you to indulge me for maybe the next 30 minutes. We're in the midst of a group of messages on 1 Timothy. We're calling the series, Church Mechanics. We're popping the hood on the church. In numerous ways, we're comparing the church to an automobile. And today's message is entitled, Taking the Keys. Just for this morning, I want you to take a moment to feel the weight of those keys. I'm sure the Apostle Peter understood the heaviness of the keys, In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gave the keys to Peter. In verse 19, the Lord said to his disciple, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Imagine, the disciple who proved chicken before the rooster crowed was given the keys of God's kingdom. Peter was independent and brash and impulsive. He made boastful statements and ended up eating crow. Peter hit rock bottom. When he denied the Lord in front of a campfire girl. And yet Peter was a recipient of love he didn't deserve. He was shown lavish grace. After his resurrection Jesus forgave and restored Peter. And by the power of the Holy Spirit Peter was made a leader. Each time the Holy Spirit wanted to unlock the door of God's kingdom to a new people group. Guess who was there holding the keys? It was Peter. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 8 at Samaria. In Acts chapter 10 in the house of Cornelius. When salvation came to the Jews and the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. It was Peter handling the keys that unlocked the kingdom. 30 years ago, God handed me the keys to Calvary Chapel. Perhaps this is the place where you repented of your sin and first experienced the joy of knowing Jesus. Or Calvary Chapel is the place where you were exposed to God's word and learned to walk with God in a deeper way. Or perhaps it was here that you were filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. Whatever your experience, Calvary Chapel was the key that unlocked your heart to God. What a privilege it was for Peter to play such an instrumental role In the building up of God's kingdom. And what a privilege it has been for me. But with those privileges. Come some grave responsibilities. You remember what Peter later wrote to his fellow pastors. He said shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Serving as overseers. A pastor shepherds. He leads and he feeds. And he oversees. He cares for the good of the whole. Believe it or not, this means that a pastor works more than one day a week. There's more to what he does than just chatting up somebody over a cup of coffee or dedicating babies or scheduling a tea time with the elders. The first funeral I ever did, I ever officiated, was for a Vietnam vet. The war had messed this guy up. He came home jaded and cynical. After a failed marriage, he hated everything and everybody. He was 35, but he still lived with his parents. I visited him once, tried to strike up a rapport, but he refused to talk to me. One night, he came home after his parents had gone to bed. He lit his mattress on fire. Then he sat down in the rocking chair, took out a revolver, and blew his brains out. The blast woke up his dad. In a panic, he put out the fire, only to walk into the living room to find his only son sitting there with a hole in his head. The next day, that dad called me and asked me to perform the funeral. I couldn't believe it. Me? I've never done a funeral before. Not me. I mean, it was like, welcome to the ministry. I can remember praying, Lord, Lord. Can't I start with maybe a a warm-up funeral? You know, like a great-grandpa who died in his sleep and left his family a fortune and a godly legacy, something like that? You mean I got to start with a level five, only for experts kind of funeral? Boy, yet this has been the story of my ministry. When God wants to teach me to swim, he just throws me in the deep end. 30 years later, this has happened so many times. Now when God says it's time to learn a new stroke, I just walk down to the end of the pool, stand right there where it says 12 feet deep. I know what's coming. You see, I've never been able to get caught up in the euphoria of the job because of its relentless responsibilities. Let me read to you a few verses for pastors. Hebrews 13 verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, now here's a verse that starts out great for pastors. Don't buck him. Don't push him. Don't buck the pastor. Cooperate with the guy. You don't want your pastor to hate coming to work. I mean, make his job joyous but here's why. He watches out for your soul. I'm going to stand before God one day, and he's going to hold me accountable for you. I mean, I have a hard enough time watching out for my own soul, and now i got to be accountable for you? I've been saddled now with the responsibility for a whole church. Hey, you didn't know it, but you can make it really hard on me one day. I mean, at the judgment seat of Christ, when it's Calvary Chapel Stone Mountains turn, I'm going to be there. And when you walk up, God's going to say, Sandy, what about that one? I'm not only responsible for the stupid stuff I've done and my kids have done, I'm accountable for the knuckleheaded blunders you've pulled. And that realization can keep a pastor up at night, trust me. You know, later in the book, Paul sends this mixed message to Timothy. I love this. On the one hand, in chapter 3, verse 3, he tells Timothy that the elders should be not given to wine. And he does so because Paul is thinking of their responsibilities. I mean, pastors make decisions that have eternal consequences. That's why they need to be clear-headed at all times. A glass of wine could cloud their thinking. So Paul makes wine off limits for the pastors yet later in the book he's also thinking about Timothy's responsibilities and and he says that there's wackos in the church that are following false doctrine and there's people that are getting sideways with silly speculation and other folks they despise Timothy's youth and there's this squabble over how to treat the widows and groundless accusations are flying all over the place and they're getting hurled at the elders And so Paul sort of rethinks this whole thing. And he says to Tim in chapter 5 verse 23, he says, Tim, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake. I mean, it's as if Paul has concluded on second thought. A glass of wine every now and then might just help you stomach this job and handle the stress. Hey, just so you know, I'm stuck on chapter 3 verse 3, all right? I don't drink alcoholic beverages. But for my stomach's sake, on most nights when I shut it down, I pour me some skim milk over a bowl of big old bowl of honey nut Cheerios. And then I plop down on the couch and I watch Sports Center. The whole thing sometimes for an hour. Every pastor's got to have a way to unwind from the stress and maintain his sanity. For Timothy, it was a glass of wine. For me, it's Honey Nut Cheerios and Sports Center. The pastor that I'm worried about is James Chapman. (laughs) I'm worried about this guy. He unwinds by umpiring rec league softball games. Now, Now, how rough is your job When your diversion is calling balls and strikes for drunk rednecks? (laughs) He relaxes by getting ugly names screamed at him? Whatever. But apparently being a pastor is a really tough job. Here's another verse for pastors. James chapter 3 verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now that's a troublesome verse for a pastor. Imagine reading that knowing that you're a pastor and you're going to be teaching the Bible twice a week for at least 40, 50 times over the next year. I mean, rather than getting a break for knowing it and teaching it, God's going to expect you to do it. The bar gets raised higher for those who teach. Let let me give you another warm, fuzzy, feel-good verse for pastors. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 15, Paul encourages Tim, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. He's saying, Timothy, you need to be careful because your words can send somebody to heaven or to hell. Now, I'm sorry, I I, want to be able to tell you that everybody's job is equally hard, that nobody's got it any tougher than anybody else, but I just can't. I mean, not even doctors deal with heaven and hell. They, They only navigate life and death. But a pastor, he opens his mouth and people draw conclusions about God and salvation and what's true and false and what's good and evil. This is high stakes. <laughs> one of the scariest moments of my life occurred early one morning. It was the wee hours of the morning, maybe 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. The phone rang, and I answered. The woman on the other end of the line, she was facing a crisis. Her father had just died, and she had questions about the afterlife, about how to be saved. I spoke to that woman for nearly 30 minutes, and I was so tired that night. I got out of bed and I knew, but I stood up during the whole conversation just to stay awake. I knew if I laid down and tried to talk to her, I'd, I'd be out. I remember all this only because Kathy told me about it the next day. She asked, Who called last night? And I said, What call? I couldn't remember I had a conversation, let alone what I said or who it was. Thankfully, Kathy heard my end of the discussion and she sort of put my mind to rest that what I said was biblical. (laughs) But I couldn't even remember the call. It was just another example of what's typical in a pastor's life. He has to be ready for action at odd hours. You see, a pastor never stops being a pastor. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 16 Paul reminds Timothy to meditate and study and take heed to yourself and what you teach lest you send somebody to hell. I I don't know if it always shows, but I work real hard at what I do. I want to be precise in what I believe and in how I communicate. You see, if the scope of your rifle is off just a fraction, the bullet might miss its target by 20 yards. And for the same reason, a pastor Needs pinpoint accuracy. I remember when we added seats to the sanctuary here, I got several bids from different contractors, and one guy gave me a ballpark price, and then later he came back with his actual bid. And it was three times higher than his original quote. And I can remember looking at that guy and saying, Man, if I'm that far off in my business, I've sent somebody to hell. <laughs> A pastor has to be sound in his doctrine and exact enough in his living for it to back up what he says. Jesus is the only way to heaven. But life is full of booby traps and missteps that can send a person to hell. I'm just saying a pastor is a regular in pressure-packed situations. When a pastor teaches God's Word, or counsels a person at a crossroads in their life. Think of Billy Wagner trying to close the game in the bottom of the ninth. There's pressure riding on the outcome. A lot hangs in the balance. And unlike Billy Wagner, your pastor isn't going to retire at the end of the season. I hope to stay on the roster, not just for 30 years, but 50, 60 years. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18, Paul is instructing the church here to pay its pastor. But he quotes this really obscure Old Testament passage. He quotes Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, which says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. (laughs) Notice, Paul refers to the pastor as an ox. (laughs) And that's okay. I mean, I'll take it. An ox is nothing fancy. There's nothing glamorous or hip about being an ox. There's nothing glamorous about being a pastor. An ox isn't a sleek stallion or a ferocious leopard or a swift cheetah or a strong grizzly bear or even a clever fox. He's just an ox. An ox is a beast of burden. He's strong and he's tough and he's durable and he's consistent. He doesn't mind the weight of a harness. He doesn't run from responsibility. Strap a plow to his back and he can keep it in a straight line. An ox can pull stuff and he hauls loads for other people. And the same should be true of a pastor. Rather than a glam job, a pastor is a man who's able to carry a load. If you want quick, find a rabbit. If you want pretty, get you a flamingo one of those plastic ones and stick it out in your yard. (laughs) If you want someone to tell you what you want to hear, buy you a parrot. But if you want to plow a field and plant some seed and grow a crop and reap a harvest and thresh out the wheat, then find you an ox and get behind him. Let him eat from what he grinds. He'll keep those furrows straight. He'll do his job. And so will a good pastor. For the last 30 years, I've learned to be an ox. I'm not sleek or quick or pretty or even young anymore. I'm just a plotter. All I've done for 30 years is listen to God, try to do what he tells me, and then do it again the next day. I don't check the weather forecast before I get up and go to work. If it rains or sleets or snows, it doesn't matter to me. I just still get up and go to work. Likewise, I don't base what I do or teach the latest opinion polls or demographic studies I'm not tailoring the message to cultural trends I'm just trying to speak for God I want to bring his timeless truths to bear in a timely way and as with an ox I've learned that God can put more on me and by his spirit I won't break he can push harder and longer than I thought I could push and by his spirit I'll still stand Just call me Pastor Ox. I have a book in my office. It's sort of become my own personal motto. It's called, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I'm up to 30 years now and counting. Let me admit, though, there are some days when I wonder what it'd be like to have a regular job. I wonder that sometimes. Did you know that the French Foreign Legion actually has a recruitment website? I know this because I've gone there. I've kind of looked it over. I've thought about joining, but you see, the French Foreign Legion won't let you take your wife with you. Out for me. Actually, there is this guy at Bay Creek Park where I, where I do my running. He has what I think is the dream job. He runs a snow cone stand. <laughs> what a job. The guy pulls his trailer up, oh, about 5:30 in the afternoon, rolls out around nine, works maybe three hours a day. I'm sure he gets home in time for the end of the Braves game. I imagine he sleeps in, does lunch with the wife, piddles in the yard in the afternoon. Around 5 o'clock, he just loads up the trailer and heads down to the park to sell, sell snow cones to the little kids, make everybody happy. What a job. Snow cone man doesn't have to manage assistant pastors or power bill. He doesn't have any power bills to pay or rebellious people to discipline or cults to guard against. All snow cone man does is just think of all he has to worry about is having enough raspberry flavoring. Enough shaved ice for the day. Make the little kids happy. Little kids don't commit adultery. Or get drunk. Or get locked up. Or shack up with their girlfriend. Or go on a cruise instead of giving their tithes to the Lord. They just like snow cones. And they love the snow cone, man. A pastor confronts sin and unbelief. He commands people to repent. Snow cone man just makes everybody happy. Just sort of passes out the raspberry flavoring and then just kind of packs up and goes home. Snow cone man is sort of like the worship leader. There you have it. Sort of like the worship leader. Just passes out the raspberry flavoring. Sings those sweet, happy songs. You ever heard of praise song about repentance about the lord loves you and cares for you and all you know when kevin was our worship leader everybody loved kevin kevin wrote these cute songs and directed children's plays i mean pastor kevin will make your child a star pastor Standy tells you not to stop cheating on your income tax Kevin was like the snow cone man. Everybody loved Pastor Josh. Good looking California kid. Oh, we love Pastor Josh. Who's Pastor Josh? Oh, the guy up there next to that big bad Pastor Sandy. See, I can't play the guitar. And I'm the only person who thinks I can sing. So worship leading is not really an option for me. And so there are days when I I think about just sort of turning it all in, turning in the resignation and buying out that snow cone man. That's what I think about sometimes. Let's see, fighting spouses, little kids, critical church members, shaved ice, snow cone man, pastor. Well, call me dumb as an ox, but I choose pastor. And here's why. I have no other choice <laughs> because I've been called by God to be a pastor. And this was true of Paul. Notice how he introduces himself. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Notice this. Paul didn't choose to be an apostle. He wasn't like thumbing through the career guide in the high school counselor's office, reading about cool opportunities in apostleships. No, God commanded him to be an apostle. Paul makes a similar statement in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul didn't sign up for ministry. God called him, then installed him. He goes on, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, Paul was the most le- least likely candidate to be a pastor. Before his conversion, he was this violent, angry rabbi who hated all things Jesus. It wasn't like Paul was recruited by some corporate headhunter working to find pastor material for the church. Paul was a headhunter. He was hunting down and killing Christians. And yet God chose him and called him. And in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul explains, God chose him to set a precedent. He describes himself as the chief of sinners. And if God chose the chief, then there's hope for sinners like you and me. We all then become candidates for God's grace. I have no doubt God set a precedent when he called me to be a pastor. At first, I didn't want a job. I can see in the south, there's a church on every corner. I wanted to be a Christian in the workplace. In fact, business was my major in college. My goal was to make lots of money and then give a bunch of it to the church. I thought the last thing we needed was another pastor. Yet in the end, my vote didn't count. God trumped me. He called me. and God commanded me not only to start a church, but a certain type of church. For my mission was to launch a Calvary Chapel where there were no Calvary Chapels. If all I had wanted to do was start another church, I would have been better off calling it Baptist. We would at least have some name recognition. Folks wouldn't label us a cult. But but God wanted a ministry in the deep south that mirrored the first church in Acts. That turned out to be Calvary Chapel. And my job isn't over. Today, our church is planning a Calvary Chapel in Barrow County. We're also encouraging Calvary Chapel pastors all across the deep south. When God called me, he set a precedent. He can use hip pastors from California to start Calvary Chapels, and he can trust the keys to old southern boys like me. When my dad gave me the keys to that 1964 Mercury It was already a decade old, and it had over 100,000 miles on the odometer. But it didn't matter to me. I learned a long time ago the purpose of an automobile is transportation. You see, sometimes we lose perspective on a car. We forget what's important. We get fixated on the style and shine and comfort. Our car sort of becomes our status symbol. Our identity gets wrapped up in the car. And you forget the ultimate usefulness of a car. The point of any car is to get its passengers to their destination. And this is the goal of any church. Whether it's a fancy church or a youthful church. Or a wealthy church or a heavily attended church. Or an innovative church with all the options. It's still got to get you to the destination. And in the end, isn't that how every church will be judged? You see, our Calvary Chapel probably isn't the type of church you'll enter in a car show. I mean, you don't walk by us and gawk. There's not a lot fancy or showy here. We got no diamond tuck interior or wide tires, or little spinners. The paint job is probably by Mako. We're like a work truck, rugged, a Toyota 4x4. That's what we are. There are newer models on the lot with more extras and more accessories. But for 30 years now, we've been getting people to the right destination. And while you're with us, we keep you tuned up and filled up and running right. In Haiti, the main mode of transportation in Haiti is tap-tap. It's sort of a covered pickup that sort of drives around Port-au-Prince, stopping and starting, letting people on and off. You tap on the side, let the driver know he needs to stop. A tap-tap is colorful, and it's usually crowded. It's a cross between a carnival bus, a taxi, and a paddy wagon. And all kinds of people ride on these tap-taps. They're all just hanging on. And I know of no better picture for our church. We are a tap-tap. Sorry, Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, we're not an Escalade. You're not going to impress your friends riding with us. We're not a Lexus. If you're looking for comfort, you'll have to go somewhere else. We're not even a Mustang. Sleek and hip are not our trademark. We're just a tap tap. We are indeed colorful. We're colorful. We're like a love bug, a big old love bug. Anybody and everybody can just jump on board and learn God's word and grace and spirit. I'm thankful for our regular riders who believe in who we are and what we do they're the ones who pay the bills and buy the gas and keep us running but Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain is just a tap tap it's not about us we don't have our our identity wrapped up in a building or in programs or in this or that it's not about us everything's functional here it's not about who we are or how nice we look Hey, this ministry is about getting passengers to their God appointed destinations. That's what we're about. You don't measure the usefulness of a tap tap by counting the people in the seats at any one time. You got to watch it as it travels along its route. People tap on here, tap off there, and you get used to it. Did they miss their connection? <laughs> Did they jump off too early? Did they stay on long enough? I don't know. It's not my issue. Jesus is Lord. I take it they're following his direction. I'm just a tap-tap driver. I got the keys. And it's my job to get my riders safely to their next stop. Of course, there are quite a few folks who've been with us now for decades. Some of you for a couple of decades. And we so appreciate your commitment. In fact, I call you the unexpected joy of the ministry. What I didn't anticipate about being a pastor was the benefit of these long-term relationships. The way my heart has been interwoven with your heart. You know, some of you I led to Jesus and I baptized you and then I officiated your wedding and I've dedicated your kids. I'm now part of your family. What an incredible joy that is to me. Some folks, they tap on and they tap off. And for the time they're on board, We sort of move them forward in their spiritual maturity. God uses us for a specific purpose at a vital time. Other riders are long-term, and we're able to build something very, very special. For a tap-tap driver, though, both types of riders are reasons to rejoice. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul tells Tim, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Notice this. Paul passes a copy of the keys to Timothy, who then passes the keys on to other men. This too is a pastor's job and joy, passing on the keys. I could never do it all. I need to raise up faithful men and women, fit for ministry, equipped to do the work of loving and serving and teaching. And if that's my goal, then I've been successful. I thank God for those he sent out from our church. I thank God for the army of volunteers he's built up here within our church that help us in the work that God's called us to do. I'm privileged to be a part of this big team. Though I'm passing on keys, on copies, though I'm passing on copies of the keys, I want you to know I still have the originals. 30 years ago, God handed a young man the keys. And by His grace, I still have them. And every week, I use those keys, the authority God's given me to show grace and to share truth and to urge repentance and to open doors. Even though those keys get heavy at times, I haven't dropped them and lost them. I haven't misplaced them through neglect. God's Spirit has kept the devil from stealing them. God is so faithful. I've still got the keys. It's been an honor to keep Calvary Chapel moving. When we hit a bump, we let the Holy Spirit realign the front end. We sputter and we pray for a tune-up. The keys are a privilege and a responsibility that I take very seriously. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what the next 30 years might bring. I hope the Lord takes us home soon. But the day will come when I will give back, I will give the keys back to the one who gave them to me. That day will come. And when I do, I want to make sure that this car is still firing on all cylinders and we're still steering in the right direction. Well, thank you for being on board Let's keep the pedal to the metal.